From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And away we go. How are you? Yeah, we have not had a chance to speak since Halloween, and uh, I'm getting a lot of emails. People want to know uh, if you uh, haven't been following this little drama. I, uh, my twin boys, Zachary and North, I mentioned that it was sort of up in the air up until several weeks ago whether North, uh, one of the uh, the twins, would be allowed to go out trick-or-treating. And alas, uh, poor little guy had his trick-or-treating card yanked. It was a performance issue at school. So he had to stay in. I took Zachary out trick-or-treating. The mighty Aphrodite made a nice Halloween form at home. He got to dress up. He got to shell out uh, candy. And she made this, it was still a bitter pill, you know, for the little guy. But he took it like a trooper, I have to say. He took his punishment very well. But he, um, the mighty Aphrodite made a nice Halloween form at home. She cooked a special Halloween dinner, which has become sort of a Serret family tradition now. She makes something called Bloody Eyeball Soup. And we I actually posted some pictures, or a picture, in the photo section on my Twitter, at Richard Serrett, if you want to go and uh, check that out. But I've been receiving so many emails about the Bloody Eyeball Soup, people wanting the recipe, and, you know, I'll, I'll try to uh, pry that out of the mighty Aphrodite, but I don't know. It's She may be a little hesitant to give that up. Anyway, the photo is... Again, on the Twitter at Richard Serrett. I also posted this, and, and no shortage of these types of stories, as we approach November 22nd, of course, the 50th anniversary of uh, JFK's assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald's widow, Marina, convinced he did not kill JFK and thinks her phone is still bugged. This was printed in the uh, the Mirror newspaper over in, over in England. The widow of John F. Kennedy's alleged assassin believes her husband was innocent but lives in fear of being killed herself. Fifty years ago, a gunshot rang out, and Marina Oswald was left as a young widow with two young children. But she got little sympathy in a grieving nation rocked by the death of its beloved president. Her dead husband was one of the most reviled men in history, JFK assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. And half a century later, her haggard face and still fearful eyes show she has never been able to shake off the curse of November 22, 1963. Since her Soviet defector husband was blamed for killing President John F. Kennedy that day in Dallas, Russian-born Marina has lived the life of a near recluse, enduring suspicion, hatred, and even death threats from people who believe she was his co-conspirator in a KGB plot. But as the 50th anniversary of the tragedy approaches, Marina, now a 72-year-old grandmother, has emerged from the shadows and is pictured in public for the first time in 25 years, shopping at her local Walmart. Long remarried and living in a rural Texas town just 20 miles from Dealey Plaza, where Kennedy's brains were blown out, Marina Oswald Porter is said to be in poor health and struggling to cope with international interest in the uh, anniversary. She originally told the Warren Commission investigating the assassination that she was that she thought her 24-year-old husband was guilty of shooting the president. But after reading some of the 40,000 books and conspiracy theories about the shooting, She changed her mind and, like the majority of American citizens, now believes in a much more complex assassination conspiracy and cover-up. Well, obviously, one of the books that Marina Oswald, a porter, uh, either did not read or was not moved by, was an epic tome that came out in 2007 by famed Charlie Manson prosecutor and author Vincent Bugliosi. His book, Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, uh, weighed in at something like 1,600 pages, plus a a, a CD-ROM, which added another 600-plus pages of endnotes. Now, 
that book was sort of seen as a uh, a shot across the bow of many assassination researchers, my next guest included. Uh, not only did Bugliosi sort of prop up the official Warren uh, Commission report uh, and, uh, you know, again, fix blame squarely uh, with Oswald, uh, Bugliosi also went on to say that this whole sort of uh, Kennedy assassination industry, I think as he called it, uh, is to blame for the way that Americans now sort of view their government and this malaise that we find ourselves in, this lack of, of, of trust for authority and so forth. Then we move ahead to earlier this year when Playtone, a production company in Hollywood, uh, which is founded by Gary Getzman and Tom Hanks, no less, uh, purchased the rights of Bugliosi's Reclaiming History and made it into a historical drama entitled Reclaiming Parkland, which sort of recounts the chaotic events that occurred following uh, President Kennedy's assassination. And as I say, it's produced by Playtone's Tom Hanks, Gary Getzman, and Bill Paxton. And it sort of weaves together the perspectives of a handful of ordinary individuals suddenly thrust into extraordinary circumstances. The young doctors and nurses at Parkland Hospital, Dallas's chief of the Secret Service, an unwitting cameraman who captured what became the most famous movie in, home movie in history. Well, in response to reclaim, uh, in response to a Parkland, um, assassination researcher James D. Eugenio uh, who's been uh, with us for months now in our ongoing JFK series, has put together his response not only to Bugliosi's reclaiming history, but to this docudrama, this historical drama film, Parkland. And his book, his latest, is called Reclaiming Parkland. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to have James D. Eugenio back on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, James. How are you? Good evening. First of all, I have to say, uh, I'm, I'm absolutely um, amazed how you were able to pull this book together so quickly. The theatrical release for Parkland came out in October, barely, uh, absolutely, like I think exactly one month ago today, uh, went into production, I think, earlier this year, maybe in January. How did you pull your book uh, together so quickly? Well, it, it wasn't easy. <laughs> I was working uh, all summer. And I was working like 15-hour days. In other words, I would get up, have a cup of coffee, you know, maybe a slice of toast, sit down in front of my computer, and I'd stay there. I'd wake up about 7, and I'd stay there all day. I'd go out for a little bit of lunch, maybe, uh, you know, a can of soup at night. And I'd work to about 9 o'clock at night. And I did that for about three months. All right, and now, once you're organized, see, one of the keys, I think, to writing is... Once you're organized, once you have all the material you need, you can pull off something like this. But a lot of this stuff, I have to admit, I pulled off. See, the Internet is such a revolution because instead of having to go to libraries, you can just search for some of this stuff and then download the documents, and, and that's how you write it. And that was, that was very, very, it's very, very, I couldn't have done it without without that. Right. Okay. And of course, you've already, you know, over the last, you know, 20, 20 plus years, you've already done, mm -hmm. you know, much of the research. I have to yeah, ask you I this. I have though. to say, though, yeah. part three of the book, right, which is about the CIA in Hollywood. Yes. That's, I had no, I had no idea what I was getting into there. Okay. I mean, I, I, I had no idea that that kind of stuff existed. 
Uh, to me, that's probably the most interesting part of the book. Well, listen, we, I, want to, I want to get into that, but I have to ask you this first of all. So Bugliosi's Reclaiming History comes out in 2007, late right. 2007, I believe. Uh, and so then they, uh, Playtone, Tom Hanks, they, they, they buy the rights to this book and, and make this historical drama Parkland. But I guess my question would be why wait until Parkland comes out, which really bears little resemblance to Bugliosi's book? Why not write sort of this response to – to uh, reclaiming history in 2007. I did do some of it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 uh, me and about seven other people wrote critiques of reclaiming history right. when it came out. Right. I'm just thinking okay. in terms of the book, you know. Right. But and but I, I, I expanded it and rewrote it for th- for this for this actual book. Okay. All right. So don't, but believe me, uh, I was on the radio uh, blasting Bugliosi way back when, when when the book came out because i you know as i write in the in the book re, that book part uh, um reclaiming history is what you call an argument by intimidation in other words most people look at a book 1642 pages long and they go wow this must be a really impressive book how could a book that big not be any good well I hate to tell you, you know, uh, Heaven's Gate was the biggest movie ever made up to that time. Uh, the, the Titanic was the biggest ocean liner ever made at that time. You know, bigger is not better, okay? It's just bigger sometimes. Right. And so what reclaiming history was, if you ask me, was essentially Gerald Posner times three. Okay. You have to explain that to our listeners, what, what you mean by that. Okay, well, Gerald Posner wrote an, uh, an absolutely terrible book called Case Closed back in 1993. This was clearly designed as a reply to all the ruckus stirred up by Oliver Stone's film, JFK. Right. And that book is about 750 pages long. Well, Posner's book was thoroughly trashed. You know, by many people, and his reputation, of course, has collapsed. He's been exposed as a plagiarist and involved um, in what is a possible shell company to take um, um, royalties away from Harper Lee. Okay, well, Bugliosi essentially is Posner on steroids. You know, reclaiming history is essentially case closed, except three times bigger. You know. Uh, there's very, if you ask me, there is very little difference between the two books. Okay, reclaiming history is a little bit slicker written. Okay, um, but that's about it. Well, okay. you know, you mentioned in, in part one of, of your of your book that you you have some grudging admiration for Bugliosi. Uh, I mean, obviously a successful lawyer and a pretty good writer, a pretty good author. Um, mm-hmm. but then you'd sort of delve into sort of, I guess the. The, the, the motivation. Let's start with the sort of the genesis of of this book, Reclaiming History, uh, before we okay. get into Parkland. Uh, as I explained in part one, Reclaiming History began really as a British television show called On Trial. This was supposed to be a pseudo-trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. And the production featured Bugliosi as the prosecutor, 
and Jerry Spence as a defense attorney. Okay, listen, we're going to take a time out, uh, James. The music is uh, coming up here. We're going to step away for a moment, come back. James DiEugenio is with us. The book is Reclaiming Parkland, his answer to Tom Hanks' dramatic or, uh, history uh, drama, Parkland, which came out just a month ago. And, of course, by extension, Vincent Bugliosi's Reclaiming History, which sort of props up the Warren Commission and uh, blames lays the blame for uh, Kennedy's death squarely on the shoulders of Lee Harvey Oswald and Oswald alone. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. Welcome back. It's uh, our seventh installment of JFK Connecting the Dots with assassination researcher James D. Eugenio. Uh, And previously we've been uh, working through his uh, tome, uh, Destiny Betrayed. Uh, Now in its second edition, the original uh, book came out uh, over 20 years ago. Uh, But tonight we're uh, taking a look at James D. Eugenio's latest book, which is entitled Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK Assassination in the New Hollywood. This in response to Playtone's uh, release of uh, an historical drama entitled Parkland, and uh, that was sort of loosely based on Vincent Bugliosi's 2007 book entitled Reclaiming History, the Assassination of President Kennedy, which again supported the official sort of findings of, of the Warren Commission. Now, uh, James, we were talking about sort of the genesis of, of Bugliosi's Reclaiming History. This started out as a, a, a British cable TV show in which uh, sort of a mock trial in which Bugliosi plays the prosecutor uh, and on the st- on trial, of course, is is um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Except, except, of course, Oswald was dead. Right. You know, so as Mark Lane said, uh, a requirement of a trial is a live client. Well, this one started off with none at all, okay, which was a very serious problem. It's one of the many problems that I deal with in my critique. So what happened was that because, as I critiqued the trial, everything was tilted for the prosecution. Okay, so when uh, the verdict came in as a guilty verdict for Oswald, Bugliosi did something very, very unwise. He actually took that verdict seriously, all right? And he now started to write this book, which was originally titled Final Verdict. Well... Two things happened that made the book into the giant, colossal piece of uh, paper that it is today. Number one, Oliver Stone made his movie JFK, all right? And number two, that movie caused the creation of the Assassination Record Review Board. So Bugliosi now decided to wait for both of those things to blow over. And then, of course, he wrote a couple of books in the interim, so this book was not published until 2007, all right? And that's what took so long, all right? Um, the book, like I said, is essentially uh, an argument by intimidation, all right? He tries to pile it on so that it looks and sounds very impressive. Once you analyze it, as I did, it's not a very impressive effort at all, okay? And... So the middle part of my book is essentially a a critique, a very long and pointed critique 
of reclaiming history. All right, and um, well, one of the John things I think people were. Famous. One of the things people were sort of intimidated by, perhaps, uh, James, and why it was maybe you know embraced by the mainstream media was uh, Bugliosi's record as an L.A. County prosecutor. He he would boast that he had won felony convictions in something like 105 of the 106 jury trials that he was involved with. Right, right. Okay, and so I actually go into that. Now, unfortunately, um, that opening chapter in which I discussed in detail Bugliosi's career all right, which I thought I was very proud of that chapter because I dug up a lot of interesting things that nobody had ever published in a book before, okay? Um, the publisher decided to cut that chapter in half. But but if you go to the ctka.net website, you'll see a review of my book, and then at the end of that review, you'll click... And you can go to the parts of the book that were cut out by the publisher. In other words, you can find the original form of that chapter, which I'm I'm very proud of. All right, uh, because what I did in that chapter was essentially discuss Bugliosi's entire career, which takes uh, takes the form of three different. Um, Actually, there's three different careers inside of that life. He's 77 years, 78 years old now. The first career was, of course, as a prosecutor, which I discuss and which I discuss in detail the whole Tate LaBianca thing, all right, which made him famous. In other words, the reason I spent a lot of time on Tate LaBianca was simply because without Tate LaBianca, nobody would have ever heard of Vincent Bugliosi. Right. This is the guy that sent Manson to prison. Right. And so, in other words, he would have been just another of those 450 lawyers, okay, uh, in the L.A. County office, all right? Now, secondly, I went into his three drives for public office. Bugliosi ran twice for L.A. District Attorney. He ran once for California Attorney General. He lost all three races. The first race was very close. I think he only lost that race for L.A. District Attorney by something like 12,000 votes. It was a very close race. And then I went ahead, he went ahead, once he couldn't win public office, uh, riding the uh, coattails of the smashing success of his book on Tate LaBianca called Helter Skelter, which to this day is a number one true crime best-selling book. Then he became an author. And... I give him credit for writing some good books. Helter Skelter is not one of them. But he did write a, a good book on the Paul Jones case, No Island of Sanity. Uh, he did write a good book on the 2000 vote heist in Florida. Um, um, that was, that was, I thought uh, that was a very good book, a very good polemic called The Betrayal of America. And he wrote a fairly decent book on Iraq, The Persecution the prosecution of George Bush for murder, okay? Um, so he has had, he's written some good books, all right? Um, now, he's also become kind of like a commentator, a guest commentator. So therefore, the one reinforces the other, okay? Um, and so all of that is in that chapter. And like I said, they cut that in half. I was very proud of that chapter, 
Okay, but like I said, you go to ctka.net website, you look at the review of my book, and at the bottom, click, and you'll find the expurg- the expurgated chapters. Now, one of the things I should say, something that took me by surprise, which is one of the highlights of that chapter, I had never read Helter Skelter before I wrote this book. I'm probably one of the very few people in America who didn't read it. Um, I was kind of very surprised when I read the book because I had all kinds of problems with the presentation of the book, all right? I don't know how much you know about the Tate LaBianca case. Uh, a little but, bit. I'm, I mean, I'm not a, a fan of true crime. I, like you, I didn't read the book, uh, so that's two of us anyway. But, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've done shows on the, on the, uh, on the Tate LaBianca murders and, and uh, on, on Manson, a number of shows. Well, you, you, you understand that Helter Skelter is mythology? All right. Oh, let's, uh, let's explore oh, that a little bit. Oh, you didn't know that? See, there's, there's about – see, when I read the book, you know, whenever I read a nonfiction book, I always have a notepad next to me. And if something's troubling to me, I'll write it down. Well, I found myself doing that on almost every ten pages of this book. It, didn't, it just didn't come together. It didn't make sense to me. So I said, am I the only one who feels like this? So I then went to various websites, thank God for the Internet, and I found out there's one called, you know, um, Cello Drive. There's one called the official Tate LaBianca blog, okay, et cetera. There, and you can look them up. And I found out I'm not the only one who feels like this. There's a lot of people out there who think Helter Skelter is a myth. And I have to say uh, that's what I wrote about, the myth of Helter Skelter, okay? It's, it's not – Bugliosi's book is not the way it happened, especially dealing with the motive for the crimes, and and that's what that came to the conclusion about that. And then I recently found an author, another an unpublished author, who spent many years researching that case. He had found the uh, the uncensored version of that first chapter online. He got in contact with me, and I met him the other night. And uh, he came to the same conclusion after doing all the research. So, in other words, uh, if if Bugliosi can't get the story straight on on the uh, Tate LaBianca murders, and he's the prosecutor in the case. How can we trust right. him in his handling of the JFK murder? Well, see, that that's exactly why that first chapter was so important. Because the argument I was trying to make is was this. Bugliosi might be a very good lawyer, okay, and he probably isn't a very good lawyer. But he's not a very good investigator, okay? And there's a difference between the two, Okay. You can be a really, really good lawyer, but if the investigative materials that you're working with are not true, are not genuine, are not honest, there's going to be a miscarriage of justice, okay? And so that, that was the argument that I was trying to make, you know, all right? And that's what I did make, all right? And so um, I simply came to – well, let, let's, let's just go through a couple points, which I think most people should know about that case. First of all, Charlie Manson didn't kill anybody, okay? Right, he didn't kill anybody at the Tate home. He didn't kill anybody at the La Bianca home, all right? Then the argument is that somehow he controlled these people and right. doing these things, okay? The problem with that is that if you examine the timeline, Manson was not even in Los Angeles eight of the last nine days leading up to the night of the murders. He was down in San Diego, and he drove up to Big Sur, okay? 
How can you control people when you're not even there? All right. One there in my when I after I was doing after I studied this, I came to the conclusion that the the true motive for the crimes were twofold. Okay. Number one, it was a drug burn at the at especially at the Tate House. Okay. Number two, another motive was the the copycat murders. Okay. Because one of the Manson gang, a guy named Bobby Bioso, had committed a murder a few weeks previous. This was the murder of Gary Hinman, a guitarist and a mescaline dealer. All right. And he had left a panther claw there, okay, at the house. All right. Because he was trying to blame the murder on the Panthers, the Black Panthers, which Hinman was associated with. This is how all those funny symbols got in to the Tate and LaBianca home, okay? It was a carryover from the Hinman murder, all right? All right? And so that is the conclusion I came to. If you t- take a look at the uh, the doctor's testimony of the drugs that were on the scene at the Tate house, there's about five different types of drugs in all kinds of amounts, okay, on the scene. Plus... Two of the people, Abigail Folger and Fikowski, had ingested SAS, which is the forerunner to ecstasy. Okay, you know. So I went into all this. Okay, that which which Bugliosi more or less ignores in his book. You know, much to the detriment of I think what the true story was. Okay, listen, okay. I, I I don't want to spend too much time. I mean, I know it's important in terms of. Uh, sort of establishing uh, the, the credibility or lack thereof of, of Bugliosi in writing the book on right. JFK. But w- what puzzles me is this movie Parkland uh, and Tom Hanks' association with it. First of all, I mean, they could have made this this book, we'll, and we'll talk about this when we come back, but the, the movie, from what I understand, really bears little or no resemblance to the book. I mean, it's it's a, an historical drama. It doesn't delve into sort of the, the, uh, the conspiracy uh, issues at all. It is sort of towing the party line, but I'm wondering why Tom Hanks got involved with Bugliosi and, and, and why they need they felt they needed this book to make a movie like Parkland. We'll discuss that when we come back. James DiEugenio is with us. His new book is Reclaiming Parkland. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back to our ongoing series on the JFK assassination as we uh, approach the 50th anniversary just a few weeks away. And this is uh, episode 7 with our assassination researcher James D. Eugenio. And his latest book is entitled Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK assassination in the new Hollywood. And I, I asked you before the break, um, w- the, the, why did Playtone feel that they needed, uh, and I'm talking about Tom Hanks, feel they needed Bugliosi's book to make this movie? because I, I it, was, it was, as I explained in the book, it wasn't Hanks. I'm convinced that if it wasn't for Paxton, Platon would have never purchased the book. Bill Paxton, okay? right. The actor, yeah, right. And he's very good friends with Hanks and Goatsman, Gary Goatsman, who run Platon. And I explain the story here how Paxton was born in the area, right? And he actually, as a young boy, saw Kennedy the morning that he was going to be killed after the breakfast in Fort Worth 
come out and give his famous parking lot speech. And um, then he went home. Then he heard Kennedy was killed, you know, and like many of us, he never really got over it, okay? And so he was in Dallas for a film festival, happened to wander over to the Sixth Floor Museum, and with the help of the museum, he went ahead and found a picture of himself, okay, that morning in the crowd. So he then, around this time, Bugliosi comes out with his book, all right, and that's the genesis of the movie. Paxton picked up the book, brought it to Hanks. Hanks bought the book, all right? And then, and this is something that's not really clear. It was originally slated as a 10-part miniseries. Right. All right? Somehow, that never took off. In the book, I theorized that it might be because the Pacific, his World War II series, went wildly over budget, okay, and did not get anywhere near the ratings that Band of Brothers did, okay? It went, like, twice what Band of Brothers was, but yet got about half the ratings that Band of Brothers did. So I theorize, and I'm not sure this is the case, but I think it might be, you know, that Playtone was not hot to go ahead and have another 10-part miniseries, you know, that could be very expensive, you know. So they decided to do a the abridged version of Bugliosi's book. See, when Reclaiming History did not do very well at the bookstores, it was then reissued as something called Four Days in November, which is essentially a chronicle in novelistic form of the days before and the days after the assassination. And so that is what they chose to adapt into this movie, Parkland, four days in November. And that's what it ended up. So you're saying that the Tom Hanks, uh, I mean, he, he just saw this as a, as a, as an opportunity to make a, a film about uh, Dallas, but while it doesn't necessarily sort of venture into some of the conspiracy uh, theories, you, you're, you're sort of adamant that it doesn't matter. It's still basically propping up the Warren Commission and the official yeah, there, version. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Anybody who's seen the movie, and unfortunately the movie didn't play very long, I think it only played, um, how long did it play up there? Two weeks? It actually uh, um, debuted at the Toronto Film Festival here. Oh, um, okay. Did you see it there? I did not, no. Okay. Well, it was only in the theaters here. It was one of the biggest bombs of recent years. It was out of the theaters in two weeks. The night I went to see it, there were four people in the audience. Okay. And uh, it, it actually grossed less than a million. In fact, I predict the re-release of JFK which is coming up in about 10 days, will probably do more money than what Hanks' Parkland did. Now, having said that, the movie was pretty boring, I thought. It was essentially a chronicle, the Warren Commission. You know, it's essentially focused on what happened at Parkland Hospital, number one, um, what happened at the FBI headquarters, okay, uh, the whole thing about Oswald coming in a couple weeks before, you know, complaining about s- supposedly Jim Hosty harassing his wife. It dealt with Abraham Zapruder, okay, uh, and the taking of his famous 
uh, super uh, regular film and the processing, and that was then purchased uh, by Life magazine. And the last part of the story dealt with um, Oswald's mom and brother Robert. Okay, and those are the, and one of the problems with the film is that those four strands of the story don't go together. They don't fit into each other. It's not like Oliver Stone's film where every stand of the story is mo- is layered into a mosaic and culminates in a powerful climax of the movie. It's not like that at all. The stories are essentially separate from each other. So there's really no big dramatic tension, you know, uh, to the movie. It just doesn't knit together very well. You know, and then, of course, there's problems with the presentation. There's a review of the film on on our website, Sitka.net, by Philip Sheridan, our movie reviewer. All right. And, you know, and there are some liberties taken, uh, you know, with what most people would consider the facts. We're going to take another time out here. When we come back, though, I'd like to get into what you learned in researching for this book, your book, Reclaiming Parkland, about sort of the connection between the CIA and Hollywood and how they sort of shape the message because the subtitle of your book is The New Hollywood, Tom Hanks and Gary Goetzman and The New Hollywood as it pertains to, I guess, how these treatments of JFK are produced. So we'll, uh, we'll get into that when we come back. James D. Eugenio with us here on The Conspiracy Show, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, just a few moments remain with James D. Eugenio. His new book, again, is entitled Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK Assassination in the New Hollywood. Interesting subtitle. What do you mean by the New Hollywood as it pertains to JFK? Well, this was one of the most fascinating aspects of the research I did on this book. Because as I said earlier, I had no idea the last part of the book is completely original. And... I discovered a couple of very interesting things that, in my opinion, very few people know about, but yet impact our daily lives in the sense they dictate what we watch in the movie theaters and what we watch on our TV screens. So let me take, first of all, Chase Brandon, a guy named Chase Brandon. Yep, entertainment Chase liaison for the CIA. Right. Around 1996, the CIA decided to set up its own entertainment liaison office in California. Chase Brandon is a first cousin of Tommy Lee Jones, and I think that had something to do with him getting a job. He'd been a 25-year member of the clandestine service. His job, and he was very explicit about it, Then I put some quotes in the book, to prove how explicit about it he was. His job was to change the image of the CIA as presented in films and television. He was very, very upfront about what he was there to do. And as I write in my book, whatever you think of what his job was, and personally, I don't think the CIA should be doing that stuff. I don't think they, I don't think they should have anything to do with the expression um, art, artistic endeavor in films at all, period. But, unfortunately, they do. They have that option. Whatever you think of that, there's no doubt in the, in the world, from the evidence I put in the book, 
that Chase Brandon, as I say, moved the mountain. He completely changed the image of the CIA as it is presented in television and films. If you recall, you know, JFK, uh, Air America, Three Days of the Condor, those kind of movies used to be pretty common, you know, a brutal, honest depiction of what the CIA really was, you know, like in Air America, the whole thing about the drug dealing. Okay. Sure. Coming out of, you know, uh, out of the, all the information that came out of the church committee and so forth about right, some of the dirty right. tricks. Absolutely. Yeah. Three Days of the Condor is about an overthrow attempt inside the agency. We all know what Stone's JFK movie was about. All right. Well, Chase Brandon was determined to completely reverse that. And he did. Okay. And he, there's no question about it. There is no, in fact, as I write in the book, not only did he turn that around, that image around, he got these people to do counterintelligence programs for him. And I explain what I mean by that in the book. He was actually writing scripts with messages in the scripts that he wanted to get to the terrorists. So they would do things he wanted them to do. Could you give me an example? Okay, in other words... He wanted in there was a, used to be a TV show called The Agency, right? Which was a glorification of the CIA, you know, in its battle against terror. And the guy who was a producer show, a guy named Breckner, worked very closely with Chase Brandon, and he would actually bounce ideas around them with him. Well, Chase Brandon suggested, why don't you create a scene? in which we have a biological detection service where we can spot terrorists coming into airports. And Breckner said, you don't have that, do you? And Chase Brandon says, well, no, but they don't know that. Okay, so in other words, he was trying to do a counterintelligence program, you know, against terrorists through this TV series. Okay? Hmm. That's how in bed these guys were with the CIA, you know? And so that's what Brandon was in that office, if I remember correctly at the top of my head. I think it was 1995 to 2006 or 2007, around 11 years, around 11 years. And then he had a successor, a guy named Paul Berry, who was only there a year and a half, okay? And they, they disposed of the office. And a guy, a CIA lawyer said, we, we decided to dispose of the office because we didn't need it anymore. We had developed such great contacts in movie land that people were now coming to us. So in other words, Brandon had been so successful at doing what he did that the CIA had created what it always wants to create. That is a self-sustaining program that they don't have to pay for anymore. You know, that's how, that's what a great job he did. One has to he wonder then, then went, if if that's the case, and given that climate, if the CIA now is so firmly sort of ensconced in Hollywood and part of the movie making process, do you think Oliver Stone would be allowed to make JFK today? I, I doubt it. I don't think so. And in fact, in in the book, I talk about David Talbot's unsuccessful attempt to get Brothers made into a movie. You know, he did a very good book called Brothers a few years back was all set up to go in Hollywood, and it never panned out, you know. Instead, we get a piece of crap like Parkland, okay, and with Tom Hanks, as I explained in the book, is 
you know, very close to the Pentagon, very close to the CIA, very close to the White House, you know. And that, I had that one chapter in the book called, you know, where Washington meets Hollywood. And I outlined how close people like Spielberg, people like Hanks are to the White House, you know. I mean, everybody knows about the whole, the whole travesty of Michelle Obama presenting the Best Picture Oscar last year to Argo, all right? Another what bit of myth-making. <laughs> what very few people know about is a few months previous to that, at the Golden Globe Awards, uh, Bill Clinton presented Lincoln, okay? And that got me thinking, and I delved into the whole thing, and Bill Clinton is so close to Spielberg that when Clinton goes to the West Coast, he stays at Spielberg's house. That's how close they are. That I did not know. That's interesting. Yeah. See, and so, and I, and I make the argument in the book, I go, in my opinion, and I, I go, I went into this in, in some depth, you know, this has created the tyranny of the two-party system in, in the United States, okay? Because, you know, after Clinton, there was Obama, and Spielberg and Hanks are as close to Obama as they were to Clinton. They think he's the cat's meow, you know? And I, and I said, I, I wrote in the book, well, how can we get any serious movies about Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Malcolm X, or Martin Luther King, if these guys think Bill Clinton and Barack Obama are great people? I mean, the mentality just isn't there. Okay? Oliver Stone is working on, uh, on, a, on a movie about Now, uh, that's King. what I've heard. Yes. That's okay. what I've heard. That I, I just saw Oliver last week. He didn't mention one word about that to me. Okay. So I don't know if it's true or not, or if it's just beginning right now. All right. So anyway, this is what the last part of the book is about. Okay, it's about this undiscovered territory that very, very few people know about. The other guy, of course, who we didn't mention yet, is a guy named Phil Strub. Phil Strub is the Pentagon liaison officer in Hollywood. And he's still there. Okay. In fact, I think he'll always be there. Now, what his office does is it decides, okay, let's put it this way. Phil Straub has a monopoly. In a sense, he has total control over a product. What's the product? Military hardware. If you want to make a movie about the Air Force, about the Navy, about the Marines, about the Coast Guard, about the Army, you have to go to his office to get the materials you can't rent those at Hollywood costume. You can't rent tanks. You can't rent bazookas. You can't rent, you know, uh, F-15 Tomcat fighters. You know, you have to go to the Pentagon, which means you have to go to Phil Strub. Now, does that mean he has script approval? Now, that that's my next point. What does he want in return? And the answer is he gets final cut of the screenplay. And... He has the ability to write stuff out. He has the ability to turn you down. You have to go somewhere else to get the stuff. He has the ability to actually eliminate projects, okay? If he says no to your project and you can't find anybody else to give you the stuff, the project's dead. And by the way, that's actually happened once or twice, okay? You know, and, you know, that, that was really kind of shocking to me, you know, when I read this, how these movie makers kowtow to Phil Straub and Chase Brandon. You know, and what a mockery this makes out of artistic freedom. 
And I begin that chapter of the book, you know, with a, a quote from a guy in the TV movie, uh, the TV business, who said, and the quote goes something like this: "Top Gun was the greatest recruitment infomercial the Navy ever had. The CIA wanted to do something like that, and that's where Chase Brandon entered the equation. All right. Now I also have a chapter in there." about Tom Hanks as a historian. I call it Hanks as a historian, a case study. This is about the movie Charlie Wilson's War. Again, I had never seen that movie or read that book until I did this book, all right? And so I went ahead and got the book by George Cryle. I then went ahead and bought the movie. And I have to say, have you seen the movie, by the way? I have, and this is about a, a senator who, uh, you know, is able to raise uh, money and get arms to the Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviets uh, in Afghanistan in the in the late seventies. We, we oh, just about at we just got about thirty seconds here, um, uh, James. Okay. So we got to sort of wrap it up. But listen, um, we're going to have you back uh, next week, and we're going to sort of wrap up our uh, our ongoing JFK series, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, Jim Garrison. And uh, okay. we'll we'll go back to uh, uh, your book, Destiny Betrayed, which we've been sort of working our way through these past several months. Uh, appreciate oh. your time as always, James. But again, uh, Parkland re- Reclaimed. How do people get a hold of that? Reclaiming, Reclaiming Parkland. Parkland, you can get off Amazon.com, and it should be in most bookstores. Excellent. All right, till next week, James. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. James Eugenio. You can say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, the website richardserrett.com, and as always, follow the truth.